Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the, morn- and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You know, that, that song was a good song to, to sing um, for all sorts of reasons, but actually, just as we sang it, I realized that that was a song that we sang um, when, when I was baptized over 20 years ago, and it, it's a true word, because that song sings of our only hope being what we have in Christ, and that uh, we stand before God in him, and that he holds us, and that's our only, um, that's our only hope for, for the life and for, the, and for our Christian life. And I think back the 20 years since a significant moment in my spiritual life of my baptism, that actually that's been true, that that's, it's Christ that, that holds us and keeps us and keeps me. And, um, and he holds us through, through thick and through thin. So this week, for various reasons, has been a, a, a difficult week for me, just different, different things that have been, been challenging. And, and we can feel, can't we? I'm sure you can relate sometimes just, just a weakness. And, um, and sometimes, like, God, can I do what you're calling me to do? Can I, can I fulfill this role that you've called me into, maybe as a parent or in a particular area of ministry or, 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 or life or leadership? There's just a situation that God's brought you into. Or maybe as we look around church, we can look around and we can feel that, that maybe we don't fit, fit in or, or it's not right in some way. And, and we're not sure about these things and whether we can keep going. Can I keep going in the Christian life for year after year after year? Um, it might just be how I'm feeling this week, but I think some of us at least at certain times can relate to, to these things. And... Uh, it's quite pertinent in church, actually. I remember about 10 years ago, Annie and I were living just, just over the road, over there, and God was stirring in our heart a love for, for this local community and, and the people here and, and the needs of this community. And, and, and he placed in our heart a desire for a local church that had embedded at its heart um, the good news of Jesus in, in all that it did and all that it said, and, and for that church to be embedded at the heart of, of this community. And we were looking out for someone who was better suited Someone with more gifts and training, with someone with more a more appropriate cultural background, someone with more experience to come and make that happen. And um, we had a desire for something to happen, but we thought that's that's probably not us. And God made it very clear that it was something that He was calling us to do, and something He was calling us to be involved in, as ill-equipped as we felt. And He put us among this um, this small team. Uh, this is the first picture of the Gate Church. Uh, if you haven't seen it before. Um, this small group of people, and uh, hardly world beaters, guys, I've got to be honest, hardly world beaters, hardly any experience, any training, no real money, uh, not much age, not much cultural insight, or or, or relevant experience, most of these people have since moved on elsewhere for for various reasons, and, um, but this picture is a real encouragement to me. Because when, when I doubt whether God is working at the Gate Church or what's going on, or God, why have you got me here, or what, you know, what's happening, all of these things, 
I'm not sure what he's doing. I'm not sure sometimes whether it's worth it. I look back at this pic and I think, well, look, that was where we were. And you look around even the room today and, and, and you know, there's lots of other people connected with and involved in the church. We're a very different bunch now. And God is doing all sorts of things in us and through us. And, and even the people who are still kind of in this picture and in this room today, we're very different people to who we were back then by the grace and the work of Christ. And it's deeply reassuring, you see, who Jesus calls and who he equips to build his kingdom. Deeply reassuring. It's been that way from the very start, as our Bible reading today shows us. Now, as, as you know, if you've been here, we're taking our time to walk through Luke's gospel, emphasis on taking our time. Uh, it's the story of Jesus' life written by, 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 uh, by Luke. And when we read this text in, in our team meeting this week and preparing, preparing for today, the team were like, is that it? <laughs> Surely there's more that you're going to be preaching on uh, this week. And listen, we're, we're deliberately slowing down as we go and walk through Luke's gospel. We're, we're deliberately slowing down so that we pay attention to and we reflect uh, a little more deeply on what we see Jesus doing and his interactions with people uh, and what we see happening. We want to pay, pay close attention to these things and what they show us about Jesus, but also what they show us about us as people uh, and also what it shows us about what walking through life with Jesus looks like as one of his disciples, walking with Jesus, what it looks like to walk with Jesus and follow him in our lives. And listen, if you're here today, you won't identify as a Christian, so glad you're here. And, and, and what you get from this is you get a little, um, a little, like it's a shop window for you as to what life with Jesus might look like as we walk through Luke's gospel. You can kind of browse and, and try before you buy and see, see what it might look like. And for those of us who are already walking through life with Jesus and following him, then Luke gives us an understanding and appreciation for that experience and, and sometimes explanations for, for what's going on for us. And, and as I've said already, today's text is reassuring for us. It's reassuring about what Jesus can do through you, however weak or ill-equipped you feel for the task at hand in your life. And we see that Jesus prays for us. We see that Jesus calls us to him, and we see that he sends us out on our life mission for his kingdom. So, so firstly, Jesus prays for his people. And I just think it's fascinating in, in verse 12 here of chapter 6 that Jesus pours this all-nighter praying on a mountainside alone with Father God. And he does it before this big moment in his ministry. He's about to call and he's about to appoint these 12 key leaders that will be the foundation and the catalyst for his church and his kingdom on earth. And this is a big moment for him and a big call. They will carry the baton of his kingdom after he's gone uh, and, and the purposes and the work of his kingdom. And so what he does is he casts out some time and some space to be alone with his Father God and to pray about it. And he's going to cover his ministry in, and his activity in prayer. That is a non-negotiable for him. Now, I wonder how that night of prayer would look like for you. Often when I retreat for a day to, to simply spend time with God, if I'm honest with you, I start there and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know, don't know how I'm going to feel this day. It feels more natural to us, doesn't it, to do activity for God. Most of us are not so well trained at just being with God. And listen, we don't have specific details, particularly here, of, of what uh, the night looked like for Jesus. I think there's a couple of things that we can observe from what we do see that, that actually maybe help us stretch and grow our approach to prayer. And, and the first one is this, that, that a whole night on the mountain 
together shows, I think, a degree of intimacy between Jesus and his Father God. An intimacy that he enjoys with God. There's, there's a closeness, what I think you might call a friendship between Jesus and the Father seen in this relationship. And it's so much more about just activity and doing stuff for God. And you might think, might you, Jesus as the eternal Son of God, he was always in perfect relationship with his Father. And so there's no need for this kind of focus time. He's like, he's always in God's zone. He's always connected to God. So, so why would he retreat on a mountain for a night to be of his Father? But imagine you treated a really close friend or or a spouse like that. You know, we've got the security of a close relationship, so there's no need to spend any time together. You know, try saying that to a close friend or a spouse. See See how that goes. No, it's the closeness of a relationship that is the basis and the source of of quality and and time together and, and that friendship. And so we see, and we've seen it in Luke already, Jesus pulls away regularly from people and situations, from the hustle and bustle of everyday life, and he retreats to lonely places just to be with his father and to enjoy his presence without distraction. And this intimacy that he has, it's not created by his time of prayer, but it's given space and, and the opportunity to be expressed and experienced and in practice deepened through these times of prayer. You see, for Jesus... Prayer is less this activity he's got to do or or he's got to perform or this thing that he's guilt-tripped into, but it's an extension and an expression of his relationship with God. And so he regularly retreats to deeply connect with his Father God. And Jesus doing that in life, what it means is quite interesting. As he does that, at other times, therefore, he's able to deeply connect with people and deeply minister to people, and and love them, and be connected and embedded in community with people, and able to serve them. You know, so many of us, I think, live lives where we go neither one way nor the other. We're just kind of in, in down that middle zone, neither here nor there. We don't make space or time or priority in life for deep connection with God. And what that means is that we're actually not able, we're not equipped to be deeply connected with people, to love and serve people be able to be helpful to them in our relationships. We just kind of middle it down the middle and neither here nor there. Jesus went all out on both fronts as he lived a perfect human life that loved God, delighted in God and intimacy of him and loving service of people. A night on the mountain alone shows us an intimacy and a friendship that Jesus had with his father. It also, I think, teaches us that prayer is not only us talking, but also us listening to God. I know some of us may feel fidgety about this, and and kind of as I thought about it, I felt a bit fidgety, because we want to say, no, well, you know, God speaks through his word, and that's where we most clearly hear God speak, and and yes, that is true, but but do you see what's going on here? Luke connects this night of prayer uh, with Jesus with his father, and then Jesus next day calling and appointing the twelve to be his apostles. And so this is an exercise for him this night of seeking the will of God, of discernment for a big decision. So it's not only talking, but it's listening and aligning and following. You know, we so often approach prayer, don't we, as, as getting God on board with my, with my needs and my program and where I'm at. And so we just... We often say prayer is us talking to God, I think it's simplest. And in one sense, that's true. But when we think of it just like that, then it's just like 
God this, God that, God the other. Do this, do that, do the other. And God becomes some kind of cosmic Santa who's going to deliver on my wish list for the day and bless what I've got going on. And again, if you imagine a close friend or a spouse, well, that was what your relationship looked like. You only ever talk to them or hang out with them when you want something from them. How does that relationship look? Imagine if that's how they treated you. You know, if, if that's our approach, then, then we miss that prayer is about God shaping us. Less than it's about us shaping God's. It's us learning to see things the way that God sees them. Us learning to do things as God would like them to be done. And you know, Jesus needed to do that. He had a human nature and a human will just like us. And so he was aligning his will with the will of his Father. You see, prayer is an experience that is far more dynamic than just us asking and God giving. He's a good father. He gives us good gifts, and and we're right to bring our requests to him. But it's so much more than that. It's an experience of our connection with God. It's like quality time with a friend. And as we do that, we're transformed to become like him. We're guided and shaped by Scripture in that, yes, but it's brought alive and made powerful by the mystery of the Spirit's dynamic and present work in us. And it seems that this kind of prayer, that takes some time. Take some focus. It doesn't happen in a maybe a 10-minute prayer meeting together. So, so what difference does, does this night of prayer that Jesus had back then make for us today? Well, listen, whenever you're reading the Gospels and you see Jesus doing something, and, and particularly Jesus doing something perfectly, which, which he always does, then there's basically two things that we can take away from, from this all the time of Jesus. It's something that, that he can do through us, but it's also something that he does for us. So you can just always think of that. It's something he does through us and something he does for us. So doing it through us, we can see Jesus here as an example uh, that we can learn to copy as part of our apprenticeship in learning to do life his way. And actually, it's not just us copying Jesus' way of, of, of prayer, but it's actually Jesus doing that through us. It's Jesus' work in and through us by the Spirit. And, you know, Jesus has offered to share with us his perfect relationship with God so that we can experience and enjoy this same connection with the God who made us. So we can learn to enjoy this intimacy with God, so that our prayer life can grow, and we can learn to even retreat regularly and be alone with God, so that we're shaped and influenced and led by him through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, you may feel distant from God. You may feel spiritually dry. You may feel that your fears and your anxiety and your depression is looming overhead and echoing within. You may feel like a failure in life this week, spiritually or or for whatever other reason. But listen, this is always true for those who are Christ. In and through him, we have this connection. We have this relationship with God. We have this access. That's never taken from us. That's never based on our performance. So we can learn to pray like Jesus. You might not be ready to go and put an all-nighter this week on the mountainside. Maybe you are, but, um, but maybe just, let's just take a step forward this week. Let's just go from where we are and go one more step into these things. Think about this. How aware could you, this coming week, think of it now, what you've got coming up, how could you create a moment, a space and a place in this week where you just pause in God's presence for some time, where you, just, you withdraw from others, 
you withdraw from whatever your responsibilities are in life for a time. To be near to and present with God and connect deeply. What, what would that one moment look like for you this week? How could we together express our dependence on God in prayer? How could we cover all of our life and ministry in church together in prayer this week? I've got a feeling Caitlin will have a suggestion for us later. Guys, it's not that you have to. It's not even that you should do. It's that you get to. It's a gift. It's an opportunity. Jesus draws us into this relationship with God that we can enjoy and we can express through times of prayer. That's him doing it through us. Really powerful. But listen, this is more important. He does it for us. Before he is ever our example, he is our saviour. Jesus has done what we can't. He has lived the perfect life that we failed to, and he's done that so as a perfect human, he could restore us to God and he could do it through us. But firstly, he's done it for us. He was praying for his apostles on this night, those he was about to call the next day. And you know what? The promise of God's word is that he prays for us too, if we're his people. Not only did Jesus maintain a perfect prayer life during his days on earth, but Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he always lives in heaven. Even at this very moment, Jesus lives in heaven to intercede for us, to pray for his people. And so he is able to save us completely to the end if we come to God through him. Jesus right now, praying for you, asking God for things on your behalf. He does it for us. Now for some, this is the question that throws up. Will you come to him? Will you seek that restored connection to God that he alone can give? It's on offer for you. Will you take hold of it? You might think you're not worthy of that. You might think you're not good enough for it. You might think you've got not enough to bring to the party. Well, let me reassure you, he has very low standards for those he accepts. And that leads us to our second point. And it's why we're all here. Jesus calls and sends weak people into his service. He does this all night of prayer. And then when the morning comes, Jesus calls all of this big group of disciples to him on the mountainside. And they come to him and he chooses 12 of them whom it says he designates apostles. And uh, apostles mean sent ones, those people who are commissioned by Jesus to be his representatives, to teach the good news, and to be the foundation of the church and his new kingdom on earth. And, and so here Jesus is he's assembling his crack team who are going to go and take the world by storm and change history forevermore. And from these guys, billions of people's lives are going to be revolutionized due to what they're going to say and what they're going to do. And you know, your Avengers assemble moment, and in the Avengers you get all of the different superheroes with a good mix of superpowers together, don't you? And they're going to go and save the world or, or do whatever they do. And, and I guess if you were in that moment and you are Jesus, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? 
I guess you're probably looking for some, some, you're looking for a mix in the team. Someone with a load of money, probably, so we can bankroll this thing. Someone with connections to, to power and authority and privilege. Some charismatic leaders who can be the, the poster, poster boys and lead the way. Some strategists who can navigate things. Some who look good, strong, and powerful. Others who are super bright. Someone who's on the pulse of culture and popular opinion and knows where things are going. Someone in media and PR. And, and you're going to bring them together. And that, that's what you're going to do, isn't it? And that's not the way that Jesus does it. Now, we don't know who all these disciples were that he chose from, but we know the 12 that he picked. So, I mean, you can imagine what the rest of them were, were like. These guys who, who he decided, the ones on whom he was going to build his church, are not all that special. And not all that special. Now, we've seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus is a magnet for the outsiders and the left behind. And it seems this goes all the way through to those whom he appoints as leaders in his church and amongst his people. So you've got, you got two sets of brothers at the beginning. You've got fishermen. Uh, the, these guys are fishermen, Simon and Andrew, James and John. These are just like everyday guys. They're, they're in relatively low-paid and insecure work. They work in retail or, or security or hospitality or something. They're not powerful, not super educated, not super rich. Simon, we know a lot about, don't we? Simon Peter, he's the diamond in the rough. An emphasis on, on the rough. He's loud and brash. He's always putting his foot in it. He's impulsive. He's ready to swipe a sword at someone's ear in a second. He's ready to deny Jesus in his greatest hour of need when he needed his friends to stand by him. And he's ready to turn aside so he saves his own skin. And yet Jesus elsewhere says, Simon, you're a rock. and On this rock, I'm going to build my church. James and John, these fishermen, they're given the nickname Sons of Thunder. They're the kind of guys who get into, get into a fight and pull a knife over someone cutting them up on the road or something. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, just, they're just like angry and just, just on the front foot all the time. They're, they're proud and angling for the best seat in Jesus' kingdom. After themselves and looking after themselves and what they can get. And Jesus makes them pillars in the church of Jerusalem. John becomes probably Jesus' best mate. And he becomes a man who is all about love. Sacrificial, servant-hearted love. He writes five books in the New Testament. And the theme that just runs through them is the love and the love and the love of God and love in people. Bartholomew or Nathaniel was full of prejudice and, and a pride that he just could not shake. Thomas was besieged by doubt and unbelief. Even after years of being with Jesus, still struggled with doubt. And yet he found the courage to believe through his unbelief. Matthew, or Levi, we met him a few weeks ago, didn't we? He's a tax collector. He's a snitch. He's a collaborator with the Romans, and he's ripped his own people off, getting rich. He's there, and then you've got Simon the Zealot. He's a revolutionary, committed to acts of terror against the Romans, committed to not paying taxes, committed to violent revolution. You can imagine Matthew and Simon. How are those guys going to get on? Like a house on fire, right? They're just, yeah, it's brutal. We've got a few others. But lastly, Judas Iscariot, a lover of money, who'd go on to become a traitor and commit perhaps the greatest sin in all history as he turns on the Son of God and hands him over to be killed. And yet Jesus, knowing that, knowing that that was what was coming, he calls him into his company of apostles. It's hardly a crack team, is it? It really isn't. Not one of them's great, not one's powerful, not one's noble, not one's now well-connected. 
not one's highly educated. One was rich, but he gave all his money away, so that doesn't help. Twelve very ordinary men with significant failings, weaknesses, character flaws, this disparate group who would never be found together normally, but for Jesus, who has brought them together. He's made them friends. He's made them family. And now they're going to work alongside one another for his kingdom. And they're going to suffer much together. Other than Judas, the one who's replaced him, 11 out of the 12 are all killed for their witness of Jesus. The one who isn't is in exile into his old years and faces much suffering and pain. They're going to die for this cause together. See, these 12 are those who Father and and Son in the unity of the Spirit agree to call on and agree to send in their service to establish their church. And I think this is just beautiful. For those of us who who kind of know some of our Bible, it's a similar way to how before the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Spirit agreed and chose a people, chose us to receive their love and their favor and to know their pleasure. And so now they agree to call these men to be with Jesus and to go on behalf of him in his authority and power to establish his kingdom. Now, in many senses, it doesn't really matter who... The whole point is it doesn't really matter who these 12 are. Some, some we know very little about. I haven't even mentioned their names to you just now. But what's more significant in, in kind of the bigger picture is that there's 12 of them, and, and, and that signifies for us in the Bible story that they're, they're the new people of God being established. They're replacing and adding to the 12 tribes of the old covenant people of God. It's, it's the new work that God's doing in the world. But it's not all about them. It's what Jesus is going to do through them. And it shows us that Jesus' kingdom work is a real underdog story. It doesn't seem, it, it does not seem that there's many, in fact, any, who he would count out or, or who he would uh, not um, see as not being redeemable to his purposes and to his kingdom and to his service. There's none who are beyond being useful to him and being used by him. Listen, this is where I think this this lands for for you and me. Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, delights to call you and to use you in his service. Father, Son, and Spirit delight to call and use you in their service. They're not looking for Elon Musk riches or Richard Branson charisma or the influence of Kim Kardashian or the brains of Brian Cox. No, he chooses and he calls people like me and people like you, despite all your sin, despite all your brokenness, despite all the ways that you mess up, despite your weakness and your struggles and your doubts and your character flaws, despite all of those things, despite the mess of your past, Jesus calls you to himself. And he sends you out on his mission. And he uses for his glory people just like you and just like you me. God's kingdom is growing through the weak and the ordinary. Some of you think you've got nothing to offer in this church. And so you're holding yourself back. You think you can possibly be a help to any, uh, anyone. There's nothing you can usefully say or pray in the context of gospel family. You're, you're no good at welcoming others or, or meeting new people. You don't know enough Bible knowledge to teach great kids or to lead some gospel family discussions. You're not gifted enough or good enough to do this or that or the other. And that just isn't true. It just isn't true. You are exactly the kind of person that Jesus calls, that Jesus wants to use, that Jesus delights and loves to set apart for his kingdom purposes 
And while you do that, he prays for you. These, these 12 guys are really reassuring. They're really reassuring of me. Jesus is able to use and redeem even our biggest failures for his purposes. You can pick any one of these guys, uh, and from what we do know of them, and some of them we know more, uh, and you can pick any one of their number of mishaps and mess-ups. I mean, Peter, for a start, and we, we just see this over and over. But I think we most clearly see it in the calling of Judas Iscariot. I mean, what is Jesus doing calling him, the one who had become a traitor, to be part of this company, to spend the next three years with him? What is he doing? Well, listen, even the great failure, even the great sin of Judas Iscariot would be used by Jesus, would be redeemed by Jesus to bring about unbelievable eternal good. It was the means by which Jesus went to the cross. And it was a means, therefore, or a contributor means by which Jesus bought eternal salvation for us all. This doesn't defend, let me just be clear, it's not a defense or, yeah, or legitimizing anyone's sin or failing in church, particularly when someone's in a position of spiritual leadership or authority or anything like that or influence. But listen, it is deeply reassuring that even our great failures, even my great failures are not beyond Jesus is redeeming work and he's bringing good from them. Part of what makes us fit for service in Jesus' kingdom is knowing that we're not fit. It's knowing that we're not capable, knowing that we can't do it except for his grace, except for his call to us and his ongoing grace and empowering and his ongoing prayer for us. He delights to call us and use us in his service. But just lastly, he also delights to call others into his service. You can look around the church as you think of those others. But I guess these guys, I guess these 12 and, and the wider group of disciples around them, they had some stuff to work through together. On plain sailing, they had to work out how they could relate to one another, how they could work alongside each other. It probably took some time for Matthew and Simon the Zealot to, to build some trust But each of them had their place, each of them had their role, each of them had their calling in Jesus' kingdom, and they had to come to see and value that and and see the purpose in it. And so too must we, if we're going to become, we talk about becoming a diverse family as a church, then that's what we, we're going to have to value that and to see that God is calling others and bringing others and others that we might not choose or we might not expect into his kingdom. And he's got a place for them to to play and a role for them to, to fulfill that we don't have. That's going to be vital for us. We in the church are an increasingly disparate group of people who God has drawn together from many different backgrounds and experiences of life, but we're called by Jesus in this time and this place to be the body of God, to be the the people of God together, the body of Christ, to be the people of his kingdom and to seek first his kingdom. And while we do that together, while we kind of walk through the mess of that and struggle with that sometimes, He is praying for us. Jesus later on promises this to to these guys. Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or, or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not overcome it. Jesus builds his church 
through us. He started this building project here in Luke 6 with these 12, and he continues it today, at least in this place and in this time in the Gate Church. We may not feel strong. We might not feel well-equipped or super-gifted or financially stable or like we've got any security in the buildings we have or like we know what we're doing. And in so many ways, we have little going for us. Yet Jesus prays for us even this morning. Jesus calls us to him and he sends us out as his people on our life mission for his kingdom. He loves and he delights to build his church with people just like you and just like me. And he's going to build his church and he's going to do it his way. And God's word reassures us that unless the Lord builds, we labor in vain. But that which God does build, no one can bring down. Who can stop? The Lord Almighty. He will bring it to completion and he will finish what he has started. Now to him who is able, to him who is able to keep you, from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore Amen